Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Naked Leadership Podcast. This is Chad. This week, Dan, Adrian, and I sit down with Russell Treat. Russell is the CEO at Interact Energy Services. He's an industry leader, software entrepreneur, podcaster, and trusted subject matter expert specializing in oil and gas pipeline operations. Russell's full of really interesting stories about the pipeline industry, and we get into a really interesting discussion about affecting change in your organization without coming across as a threat. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Let's dive in. So I'll just tell you a little bit about myself. So I'm a, I'm an engineer by education. Um, I went to Texas A&M. I was in the Corps of Cadets, uh, did marching band, played high school in football, spent some time in the military, got out of the military, uh, worked as an engineer. And I started my first business as an entrepreneur in um, 1988. So a while back and very quickly kind of transitioned into software. And I've been running software businesses that were technical software, critical infrastructure kind of software businesses um, for over 30 years. I've been doing software since before software was really an industry. Um, so I, I got induced, I got introduced to this work in 98, um, went through the training that was at that time called Breakthrough. Uh, it was transformational for me. I mean, when I went into the training room, I remember this so vividly, I went into the training room on a Thursday and I'd stopped and got breakfast at this little drive-through place that I always go through. And I'm, everybody was just being sour, right? Everybody's just being sour. Got out of the training room on a Sunday, went back through that same breakfast line on Monday and everybody's hurting and needing and, you know, just wounded. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> what changed, right? Well, my perspective changed. And that, you know, that was a transformational moment for me. And I, what I've tried to do is I've, I've tried to apply that to um, my, my life, my passion, which is, you know, being an, intro, an entrepreneur and trying to make a difference by helping critical infrastructure, engineering centric, stodgy, if you will, um, you know, slow to change um, kind of organizations. And, and trying to figure out how to challenge them to change without that feeling like a threat. Mm. And that, that is a, that, that's an interesting line to try and walk. <laughs> I want to get to that in just a minute. I have a, I have another question for you though, before we dive, uh, are there any training stories that you can tell us about Dan that he just would not want you to tell? <laughs> um, a mini. How <laughs> long we got? I think. I think though, there's a there's a, there's a couple though that are really really noteworthy. Um, I was in a training where I was like a team captain, and I was you know hanging around with the trainers, and we're sitting down at one of the breaks in the in the room where the you know the trainers have lunch and stuff, and I'm listening to the trainers talk. And they're, they're correlating these physical experiences they have in their body with the emotional context in the room. And that freaking blew my mind up because I always looked at emotions as obstacles, as things that got into the way of getting stuff done. And, and I'm watching Dan and I, and I think it was Tammy McCracken that were having this conversation and I, it just blew my mind. And I went back into the room and I started checking in with my body and I'm like, Oh, and I started to get clear that for me, certain physical feelings correlated with certain things that were existing in the subtext of the room. Hmm. That, and, you know, so that, that's one thing that's, and, and, and like Dan was not trying to train. That was just me sitting there kind of being a fly on the wall and listening and going, I am so out of my element, man. I just, I just need to figure out like what's going on here. And, and when I reached out to Dan I, uh, to talk to him about getting on the podcast, you know, I'm like, it was really cool. I can listen to this podcast. I actually understand what you guys are talking about. Cause I didn't when I got started, <laughs> I was a pretty good engineer, but knew nothing about all this stuff. So, that, so that's one story. And I, I think I, I, without getting into the details, 
you know, Dan's pretty transparent and pretty open and he kind of shares what's he's intentional in his sharing. Cause he's trying to put something in the room to cause an outcome. Right. But I remember some of the stories he talked about with his mom in particular and her illness. Cause my mom had a very similar illness and I dealt with it a very different way. So there's a lot of, lot there. And then I've, I've heard him talk, you know, about his relationship with Eileen and, you know, kind of the, where the journey he went through and all that. And <laughs> just, just a lot of stuff in, in that, in that domain. So yeah, yeah, there's, I probably could tell a whole lot of stories and there'd be more forthcoming over a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said, you know, I said that I asked that question a little tongue in cheek, cause I don't think anything, I, there's nothing that happens that Dan wouldn't want shared. I mean, that's, that is the experience of what you guys are calling breakthrough. We now call the revenant or, or it's, it's current rendition of it is called revenant. And uh, you know, we invite people onto it from this podcast all the time or into it from this podcast all the time. So it's not going to be foreign to the listeners, but yeah, my, my question is a little tongue in cheek just because my experience of you, Dan, is so you're so open. You're such an open book about all of it that to share a story from a training or whatever, it's just what, just whatever it's it's a I, Tuesday. It. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 we would need more than an hour on a podcast for me to share Dan training stories. Yeah, yeah. and and I, I would never get embarrassed because I embarrass myself a lot much worse than any of you could. So <laughs> <laughs> That's what I like about you, Dan. I like about you. Well, um, I think we. I don't know if you planned this, Russell, and if you did, brilliant man. But like, I think we stumbled upon a beautiful topic in your introduction, which was affecting change in an organization without it coming across as a threat. That is like, to me, all kinds of lights went on when you said that. Um, yeah. And I should, I should build a little bit more context around that, around kind of the details of what I do. So I have in, in my career, I've, I've always been a pretty hardcore engineer and, you know, I'm, I'm a guy that if I don't get to do real engineering for a while, I, you know, it's like, I've got it. I have to stop and go do real engineering and get into some heavy math and all of that. And, and I have found myself becoming, I'm, I'm a fairly well-known subject matter expert in pipeline operations, particularly around the control room and leak detection and the environmental um, requirements and the, the federal and state regulatory requirements around that kind of operation. So, you know, those organizations by their nature are extremely slow to change because change is risk and risk is bad. Well, and it right? makes, so, it makes, it makes, it does make sense because it's a lot of suffering that gets that people had to go through to get to where the science is now. So it's yeah. understandable that you don't, you're not just going to go willy nilly and make a change. Right. Well, and, yeah, exactly. And, I, you know, there's a thing called the J curve in project management or transformational change, right, where it's kind of like you know, if you're a golfer and you're getting older and you need to change your swing and you go to a coach and you start changing your swing. Well, one of the things you know is your golf game is going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. And the same thing's true in any kind of operational practice. You know, and when you're dealing with critical infrastructure and, you know, things that if they're not done correctly have, you know, serious life-threatening environmental consequences, then you're, you know, you, you approach change in a very different way than you might otherwise approach it. And for good reason, right? Yeah. Definitely. Does change that you said, you know, change is risk. Is change always risk? Is that unique to oil pipeline or does change always show up as risk, especially in an organization and you've got to get people on, on, in line with well, you. I, you know, always is I, I'm, I, I don't like words like always and such sure. but often was probably a, a fair way to say it. Um, you know, there, there are those of us that like change. I'm, I'm, I'm one of those kind of people. I like to stir the pot. I like to change things up. I like to do something different. I'm not the guy. I am the guy to put in the yard. I am not the guy to cut the grass. You know, that that's one of the things I've learned about myself. So I don't know that change is always risk. Sometimes lack of change is risk, but change is often perceived or emotionally experienced as risk. Mm. Right. And, and, you know, in my world, we don't, we don't talk about emotions a lot. I mean, they're there, but they manifest in a, 
they manifest differently than in other kinds of work. I mean, because you're talking, you know, the, you know the, the, the people I work with, men and women, are more what I would call old school. You know, they, 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 they don't say much. When they say something, they mean it. You know, they're, they, they're not soft. They're firm, right? You know, they, they, they have a position. They hold it. It's supported. You know, and that that is in our world these days, that's a bit countercultural for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is change is change always risk? I don't know. <laughs> Dan, Adrian, what do you how do you view the relationship between change and risk? Well, I'm, there's there's two domains, like there's objective risk and there's the sense of subjective risk. And I could be subjectively feeling very confident and secure when, in fact, I might be objectively at risk uh, and now, uh, not, not aware of it. Yeah. So, Dan, I, I've been reading a lot of stuff about process safety management. And I, I anytime there's an incident in the pipeline world, I read the incident reports, you know, the detailed technical reports. And then I read all the commentary I can find about it. I read the regulatory findings and so on and so forth. Most process safety failures are human failures. Yeah. And they're normally around a conversation that should be occurring that isn't occurring. Yeah. Yeah. Help us. Can you give us an example? What's, I mean, like, what, how does that show up? Well, so. I mean, I'm trying to think of, of some specific examples. I, I'm reading a book right now that's uh, written by a couple of Australian PhDs called uh, Night, Nightmare Pipeline Incidents. And it's, it, it's kind of talking about two major uh, uh, situations that occurred in 2010, one being San Bruno, which was in the San Francisco area, um, and the other being uh, Enbridge, which was in uh, Marshall, Michigan, where there was a large spill and in both cases there's a lot of conversation about how decisions were made and how those decisions were made outside of policy and where there were assumptions about who had the authority and where people who had the authority but not necessarily the technical knowledge abdicated and where people with the technical knowledge but not necessarily of the authority didn't assert yeah. so um, you know, there's that is common in almost any kind of major failure. You can you could go through any of the failures in the last 30 years and you will find that as a thematic issue. So it's a leadership issue. Exactly. <laughs> Process safety management is a leadership issue. And the other thing that's interesting in my world is that leadership is often thought of as direction. Right. Yeah. And it's not right. Leadership is creating a culture where it's safe to say what people don't want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you look well, at the Challenger yeah. disaster too, right? In the space program, the same thing. Yeah. There were people who knew those O-rings were going O-rings, to be a problem yeah. and there was management leadership not listening. Mm. Yeah. And I was just even thinking to add on to what you're saying, um, just because I, it, you know, the word safe is always like nails on the chalkboard for me because I'm a weirdo. But the, you know, it, creating a culture where it's it's it it's it's not where people say what's needed to say, even when it's not safe to say it, right? Where yeah. people actually live with a, a level of integrity, dignity, and commitment. Where I'll even forego my safety. Back to the risk question conversation. Yeah. I'll, forgo- I'll take on interpersonal risk and even risk to my family, risk to my well-being, risk to my future, my career, because reputation, reputation uh, because it's what's right or because it's the best I know. And, I'll, and I'm committed to showing well, up and it, saying. The, the, yeah. And the interesting thing about that, Adrian, about that kind of statement or that thinking is that, you know, in this kind of engineering there are not clean edges in the analysis, right? There's there's gray edges, and and you have to make your decisions in these gray edges, right? So that that causes some challenge about well, should I assert this? Am I am I do I feel strongly enough about what I'm seeing? 
versus I've got a set of weak signals here and my gut's telling me something's wrong, but I don't know how to articulate it. Right. On. And that, you know, that, that is well, one just, of the challenges kind of in this domain as well. Yeah. I mean, now you're getting in that, that's a real complexity that, that gets down to what we were talking, you were talking about when you first heard Tammy and I talking in the trading room. And that is discerning between what you logically can examine and what your gut is telling you something's not right with. And then you have to check between the two to see what nuances might be there that you're not even aware of. You know, it, it's so often a lot of my work, you're, a lot of my work, I work in an area where, you know, we work in an area with people generally that they're, they're willing to take risks or they might think they're secure when they're not, or they might think they're insecure. Usually for me, they're afraid that it's more dangerous than it is. Like they, they're afraid they can't handle what comes up when in fact they've got more than enough to handle what's up. Right. It's really interesting, but, but both are true. That's why I think any superlatives about this is always that, and this is never that is dangerous because <laughs> reality is dangerously complex. Mm, yes. Yes, it is. So, yes. Curiosity is the antidote for bias. Dogma. <laughs> yeah. So that so you know this this whole conversation about process safety and leadership and what that means in the context of you know the work that you guys do, it, it's really been up for me in kind of a big way. And I've I've been, you know, I've been, I've been rolling around in my mind. I've been working on a I'm calling a manifesto around process safety management and and what we need to do in the pipeline industry. And I've been trying to draw corollaries between what the airline industry has done and what the pipeline industry has done and where we are versus where we need to be and so forth. And what what I find really fascinating in that in that conversation is there's a lot of intellectual assent mm. without a lot of real digging in. If that makes sense. Yeah, well, it's that it makes a lot of sense because there's a lot, you know, we're on a field where there's a lot of people saying they can do what they they have no clue about how to get done. You know, the the BS factor, the bullshit factor in the consulting industry. The is, fantasy factor. Yeah, it's just gargantuan. And so mm -hmm. it, I always expect from our clients a certain level of skepticism, which is healthy. Uh, they, they ought to have it. Mm -hmm. And if we can't demonstrate that, A, we can articulate the breakdown at least as well as they can. And B, we're not, if we can't solve it, we have people we know who who can, who, who can be in, we, can, we have a network. They know that we're competent enough that we're willing to admit when we're not competent or we don't think we're competent to go into a certain area. And I think that's what the client's looking for. And I think that's what people are looking for in community is that kind of authenticity so that we can get, we can better it for everyone, you know, in the process. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that hundred percent, man. It's, it's a, it's, it's being, it's being viewed as a trusted advisor. Yeah. A corner man. Here's, here's what I know to be true. Here's why I know that to be true. Here's what I believe to be true. Here's why I believe that to be true. Here's what I see. And I have no idea whether that's truth or not, but here's the guy who can look at that and give you a better answer than me, mm -hmm. you know, and then navigating that so that people feel comfortable picking up the phone and saying, Hey, I've got this problem. What do you think? Yeah. I want to just rewind just a little bit as we talked about this, you know, instituting change without being a threat or, or coming like being perceived as a threat. Because I think what, what we're talking about right now is, is goes hand in hand with that, this trust that you're building and this authenticity, authenticity, openness, transparency. I'm wondering for you, as you claim that, like I've been learning how to institute change with, I think that I don't, I didn't write down your exact sentence, but I think it was something like I'm, I've over the years been, learning to institute change without coming across as a threat. That's the thing that really poked my ears up is what are you learning? What have you been learning? What have you been practicing over the years in, in that context? How oh, are you? Yeah. Great question, Chad. I, I think, I think the first thing I learned and this comes out of, I remember a conversation with Dan when I was doing leadership, doing the leadership Academy. And I don't even remember the exercise. But what I remember is I was in a situation where I completely locked up 
like Dan asked me a question and like everything just went and it was that way for a while um, probably a lot longer in my experience than for everybody else's and at one point Dan just said Russell breathe <laughs> and I took a deep breath and I got some clarity so one of the things I've learned is breathe you know it's just just in the midst of it when you get locked up and you don't know what to say just take a moment and breathe just relax right and and so that's one thing I've learned another thing I've learned and this is this goes again to who I am so you know, I come out of a, a need to be somebody and to need to be and the need to be the person with the answer, the need to be the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. Right. And often I am. And that is a liability. And what I've learned is that's a liability is that that way of thinking, that way of being is a liability. Hmm. So, you know, it it. Just, just being able to suspend the what I know to be true in order to be open so that you can hear the real conversation that's occurring. It's so critical and it's such a big challenge for people that are highly educated and highly intellectual and highly intelligent because our worth and our success generally, particularly early in our career, comes out of that being able to know. Yeah. 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 And, I think being, about that a lot. and oftentimes being able to know when other people can't or want because they won't dig into the tech. They're afraid of it. They don't like the math, whatever that is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I got to tell a story that a, a friend of mine likes to tell us. And, and, and uh, you guys know what a Piro is? No. No. Piro is a little thin canoe that they use in the bayous in Southern Louisiana. Oh, okay. So th this guy was a manager of a department at a, at a midstream company and they had a chemical engineer who was just a savant, just the guy's just brilliant, but he had a real need every time he was in a meeting to prove that he was a savant and he was the smartest guy in the room. And it, it turned a lot of people off and shut a lot of conversations down. So my friend took this guy aside and said, son, you need to know who's the smartest person in the P row. And he's like, well, what do you mean? He says, well, look, you're the smartest guy here in this room and everybody knows it. You don't need to tell anybody. We all know you're the smartest guy here. But when you get in the B-roll in the swamps of Louisiana and you're going out to an analyzer site and you're with Boudreaux in the B-roll, you need to know who the smartest guy in B-roll is. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> without Boudreaux, you're not getting back. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, so uh, New Orleans, so New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very southern. Yeah, very southern. Yeah, you know, so you know, you, being I, clear I, about those kind of realities, and that everybody has something of value to bring, right? One of the hardest things that that I've done in my career is working with people that were very good technicians and trying to understand what it is they know, because they they yeah. know a lot, but they're often not real good at articulated articulating, or I'm not very good at listening for it. Hmm. And it, it, it requires some real effort and some trust building, right? Yeah. Well, I, it, connecting some one thing you said uh, that uh, I come up against all the time and with all of our clients, for sure, um, is, you know, what do we do when our, when our competency is not enough? So like you, you were just saying, it's whenever you're the smartest guy in the room, when you're really intellectual, you know a bunch of, you're, you're a content expert that can be, depending on how you relate to that, that can be your biggest, anyone's biggest liability um, is because you're highly competent, but the thing's still not working. Um, or, you know, you, you're, you're, you're really smart and then you're around other people that aren't as smart. And so now you being, you th might think your job or the easiest success for that meeting is to prove like that savant in the Piro story to prove that he's really smart instead of realizing, Oh, actually, if I was that, if, if, if I was playing a bigger game, instead of proving how smart I am is getting them to get how smart they are, which I think is your point. Um, Cause if you aim the conversation at what's working or what's not working, that's a, that's a pretty simple conversation. Um, or what knowledge is missing. That's also, a, I say simple. I, I don't mean to, to demean it. I mean, if it's simple for some people, if they've got the- It's linear. It's much more it's linear. linear. 
It's not it's abstract. Right? That's right. Where the other conversation about, you know, this goes into the, 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 where is the opportunity? Where is the possibility for, for change? Right. It's generally right. not in what I know. Right on. And it's also not in what somebody else knows. It's, it's That's either right. in what we together know, but we don't know distinctly, or it's in what none of us know and we've yet to discover. That's where the That's opportunity right. is, right? right and, and trying to find that is a very different thing than trying to get an answer. Yes. Well, right? you, yeah, you know, you hit on a couple of things. So we kind of go back to your comments about threat and risk. Because um, you mentioned risk in the beginning, and then we talked a little bit about that, and you talked about threat. And if you think about to change an organization and not have it be a threat, is the ability to embrace risk uh, and not feel threatened. Like, like, think of a guy, you think these guys, they, they jump, you know, they have those flying suits. They, and right. They, right. So there is a definite risk there. That's an external. The risk is I could kill myself. Yeah. But that doesn't that doesn't have to be a threat. The way they relate to it, it's obviously not that big of a threat because they're jumping off these, you know, and out of planes and out of high places. And they're able to manage themselves all the way to the ground. So at some level. They recognize the risk, but they don't receive it as a threat. Or at least, oh, I, I would, I would, I would, I would take it, turn that. I don't think that's absolutely correct. I would actually state that a different way. Oh, tell me, tell me. What they you they understand the risk. Yes, and they have tools and training and competencies and strategies for dealing with the risk, so that the risk doesn't stop them. Yeah, it doesn't. It, they're obviously that's even I like that they're managing the threat within them. Yeah, and I mean it, that's actually what process safety is all about. A process safety, yeah. just a quick definition, is distinct from personal safety. Well, process true. safety is about the safety of the system. Yeah, right. Versus the people being safe. It's, it's a distinct discipline, and the way you make a system safe is you understand all the things that could go wrong. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I guarantee you, those people that are jumping out of those airplanes, they have a clear understanding of all oh, the what things could go that wrong. Go wrong. <laughs> you know it, and they have a yeah. plan for dealing with it. That's right. And so, so they're yeah. jumping out of the plane. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Great distinction. Or even, and, and, yeah, and I think to the point, maybe one of the points here too is they probably have a way of assessing, recalculating taking effective action, even when a, a problem shows up, they've never seen. Yeah. You know, because that's an evaluation. Is that exercise safe given that new information? Right on. Yeah. I, Which I is why people you, those guys do a pre-jump plan before they jump. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I was just, um, I just met Andy. What's Andy's last name? I'm not going to be able to pull his last name. He's the guy that, that um, used to run high performance at Red Bull. And there's a video on their, um, on their website about the guy that did the stratospheric jump. Oh yeah. And, right. and the, there was no, there was, there's plenty of potential issues with the science, uh, but they had to find somebody crazy enough to do it. Cause it, you know, no matter what their plan was, we don't know. This is human venture. We've never done this before we can we can science this right. to death and we still don't know and so but getting a guy that's willing to 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 uh, operate himself as the first machine then there's, he's surrounded by machines and are surrounded by science but he's got to get a hold of his own machinery internally so that he's even willing to go through the process by which to get ready and then um come jump day get yourself in a place where you, the human machine isn't going to stall up like you in the training room where you just get frozen with yeah. the complexity or frozen with the, you know. Yeah. In my I world, assume. that's called human factor science. It's the discipline of making the machines match the competencies and the capabilities of the humans mm -hmm. yeah. so that you improve the human effectiveness 
But because a lot of times, if you don't properly build the machine, you can dilute the human effectiveness. Sure. Yep. Right on. So, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting if you if you if you if you're into aviation, you read about test pilots, or you read like the biography of Chuck Yeager and some of these guys that fly experimental aircraft. There's a there's a lot of corollaries in this conversation there because there'll be a technical team that's dealing with all the stuff and capturing all the data and doing the analysis, but the pilot will fly the aircraft and come back and try to explain what they're experiencing. And then there's this whole process that goes on between what the pilot's experiencing and what we got to do with the machine. So you find the same thing in racing. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. But the difference is that oftentimes, you know, they spend a lot of time working on the language and the vocabulary and the definitions to be able to make that exchange effectively. When you start getting into these areas where it's less well understood and the language is not available to you, it's, it's, it's a whole different level of challenge. Yeah. Yeah. You think about that. That is, we, we talk about a lot of this in the training room from the perspective that we ask participants to view their emotions as thoughts trapped in the body without language. And that the way to free them is to find language that that will help you communicate what it is that's going on. And when people do that, they become much more confident in, they become confident in their ability to deal with a, a relational situation that previously appeared impossible to even engage because they'd be flooded with emotion and didn't know what it meant, how to access it. It just took them out. Yeah. Yeah. I had that experience. I think we talked about yeah. that just a little bit ago. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what I was going to say is I want to I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of facilitating change or, or instigating change without being perceived as a threat. Yep. And, and a lot of that, to my mind, is about the stance you take as an individual that's trying to be the leader to ask the hard question. So it's, it's about creating a place where it's safe. To, to ask these hard questions that can be challenging to all of my preconceptions about what I'm already doing, what's already working. Mm-hmm. Well, there, it's a, back to kind of Adrian's thing. There's no, if you're going to challenge preconceptions, it's not going to feel safe. However, it doesn't have to be threatening. I, I've right. got to. I've got to create. Ooh, that's a, that's that, that 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 requires a little unpacking there, Dan. You want to unpack that for me a little bit? This is. <laughs> well, yeah. This is good. It goes. It goes to something Jordan Peterson often talks about: is that a man who is harmless is uh, dangerous. Not a good man. Not a good man, because meaning that if somebody who's dangerous and and but uses you know directs it to control it they don't there's somebody you can there you can trust them because you know they know how to use their power but if somebody's harmless they they can be extremely dangerous because they don't get the power that they do have right like like harmless no stand yeah what's that there's no stand there's no, well, yeah. there's no standing anywhere and because and, because to take a stand is dangerous yes and well but the thing is and then harmless people become dangerous because they don't take a stand. And those who take a stand for, you know, evil purposes then have their, their way. Right. That's the yeah. point. But you, you really want to be it's somebody who's dangerous that can produce trust. So Adrian, and I, Adrian has this distinction. We, I love it. You may get on it a little bit. I, I can do it, but I'd love to hear you do it. Adrian It's so much more fun are uh, between security and safety. Cause I think that, that really plays into this here. Well, so the way this comes up all the time is, is especially, and you alluded to kind of current culture, current culture is if, if I, if we create the right environment, then human beings are going to show up and which is a very interesting, you know, equation. First off, there's no, there's no power in the individual and it's all cultural. Um, and it's just, it's, it's flimsy because it's the environment's actually never safe. It's just an illusion of safety. And then it sets up a very codependent relationship where if it, then I, right. But so now I'm not anything until it is. And mm-hmm. anyway, there's a lot of pandering that's necessary in order to keep that, even the equation real, 
there must be we must we must avoid all the danger that's right in front of our faces in order for people to actually show up and be an individual number one so anybody that's like trying to create psychological safety in an environment they're setting up an environment which actually trains people to be weak that's what i say instead of what, yeah. So in the same exact yeah. in the same exact situation, we could generate a culture of personal security. Now, where does that come from? That comes from me being clear about who I am and about who I'm committed to, and that's true. Like let's let's just say that's true, no matter what's going on out there. And so anything that comes up as ease, wonderful, great. Anything that shows up like it's a threat, wonderful. Here I am. I'm here to now. I'm here to deal with this. So the environment is a place for me to express myself. And so, you know, it, you know, I, you know, I always say like, I, I'm a happening. It's never happening. I'm a happening, mm. you know? So if, and that's only true if um, I'm deciding to, that security comes from me, not from the environment itself. Does that help Dan? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's externalizing it, right? Like, the problem with making a safe space is you're still, you think your safety is grounded on outside of you. Like your sense of security comes from situations that aren't threatening rather than uh, you owning what you're committed to and knowing that you can navigate it. Right. Like, like whatever comes up is going to be what's you, what's wanted and needed. So, so Dan, let me, let me ask you this question. What is required for an individual to own that they can navigate that circumstance. So now we're talking metaphysics. <laughs> so yeah, what's required is one, they're willing to entertain how it is they're they're how it is they're contributing to exactly what they have. How it is they can contribute to exactly what they want their willingness to embrace the complexity of what they're standing in. So those are, those are, so there's a humility and a confidence. It's paradoxical. So there's the humility to admit, I don't know, and the confidence to stand for what I'm committed to with what I do know. Well, yeah. So I'm going to try and say that in different words. It's, it's the, it's the humility to, know that I don't know and the confidence to believe I can understand. Yeah. Well, you right. know, it's, it's, yeah. I not only understand, I can act, right. I can do something about well, it. Well, yeah, I can understand and move from that understanding. So yeah. a mutual friend of ours years ago used to say to me, I have a hard time with you're too certain. And I yeah. said, what do you mean? I couldn't understand what he meant by that. Like, what do you mean by certain? He goes, well, you just think, you know, everything. I said, well, how is that? What do you tell me what you mean? And, and so he kept, and I, I started to understand after we talked for a while that it wasn't, it, he was, there's certainly, I can be arrogant. There's no doubt about it. But a lot of what he was calling arrogant or overconfidence was just confidence because I wasn't really, like, I remember him saying, when you walk in the room, you just think you can make it happen. I go, well, no, I actually have a confidence that no matter what comes up, it's going to be perfect. And so yeah. I have confidence in that. And so I act into the space, believing that no, you know, I'm standing, I'm not even standing. I just standing is that I'm not believing it. I'm just, okay, bring it, you know? And that's very different than coming in going, I can make whatever, ha I'm not thinking about, I can make it happen. I can stand in it in a way that together we're going to, it's going to reveal it. Right. It's like, whatever happens, I can roll with it. I can roll. I'm not, it's not, it, it, whatever it destroys me probably needed to be destroyed. So I might as well go after it. More right. Than, and even more than I can roll with it, I can thrive in it. I can thrive in it. I can, it's perfect. It's what we need. I, I, you know, do I, it goes back to this. Is that true? I don't know, but I found that it work life works seems to work a lot better standing that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking about back to I think the subject matter here, which is where you come from, Russell, and and I'm thinking about like when the systems break down, how do people show up? And yeah, you know, it's it's there's there's definitely two two types of responses. I was going to say two types of people. I don't know that it's that uh, dictated by history, but 
you know, two responses. When it breaks down, do people lean in or do people run? Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and if you can train that into a culture where it's like, okay, we're going to do everything we can to be as smart as we can about every situation and shit's going to break. And, and when and, shit breaks, go ahead. I want to just clarify, like when Adrian says, when shit comes down, do they go toward it or do they run? Now, that's not something he's speaking literally, and it could mean that, but that's not really what he's talking about. Do they, are they curious about what's going on or do they find themselves defending, um, hiding? Yeah, engage the question. That's right. Versus do they anchor to the assumption? Yeah. Like, are they willing to, in, are they going to prove or are they going to wonder? Right. <laughs> and then, yeah. And that's, that's, that's what I'm getting out of that. Yeah, I'm, this is one of those things that I think is a distinction between a good engineer and a great engineer. A great engineer yes. has elevation over their intellect. Right. It's like they have, they have two minds. They have one mind, which is their analytical mind that, that, that works within the context of all their training. And there's another mind that stands on top of that and is asking questions about, is that enough? Is there something missing? What other what other information do I need to gather and where would I get that? Because it comes from outside of me. Yeah. Right. And, and that's a, that's a, I think good, I think great engineers do that. And then you, you take that another level and well, as we're having this conversation, I'll, I'll just try to tell you what's going on in my mind and see if I can put words to it. I'm thinking about the, the type of thing that, you're trying to take this and talk about it in terms of, of, of how these critical infrastructure systems are operated. And in general, there's three kinds of operations. There's normal, there's emergency. Those are the two extremes. And then in the middle, there's something that's abnormal. Abnormal being, well, it's not normal, but I don't have an issue yet, right? And, and a lot of this ambiguity comes out of how do we manage through abnormal situations, right? Yeah. It's, not what I do every day. It's not 80% of what I do. It's not an emergency. And I know what to do when there's an emergency. It's I'm in ambiguity. Mm, right. And that is a real interesting, how do you get people to engage with that ambiguity? Because there's, there's the planning for it. There's the being in it. And then there's the afterwards evaluating what you did and determining, you know, what needs to change really good safety programs take people out of those questions and they focus on processes, procedures, competencies, training, you know, the organizational elements, the people elements that support the people to do their job. Because the presumption is nobody wants something bad to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, so, you, you asked the, back to your question about change and how to implement it with, you know, some security or sense of, confidence right it's i'm reframing obviously but the, the the thought is one of the thoughts and one of the things i know adrian and i do a lot of looking into when we work with an organization is where do people look when, when it's time to change something where do they think the locus of change lives and there's only one of two places they can either, they're either going to look into, well, there's three. They're, e they're either going to look into, they're going to get caught up in the content. They're going to look at the symptoms. They're going to say, there's a problem. And they're going to point to the symptom. Like people, we have a 75% turnover rate. How do we fix that? That's normal. That's kind of the scientific question. So they go in and they go, well, we could, you know, they maybe we need to like we're not communicating enough with these people, or maybe there's we got to give them this information, and um, you know there's all these content issues that they start to deal with, and they notice because this is from a real example that it doesn't really change; it just takes on different forms, but they're still having the same conversation about the same breakdown. The other one, uh, the the other thing they might look at is well, what can we do since we can't geez, maybe it's the system. Maybe we need to change the system. So they start working with the system since the content in the system, rearranging that didn't work. And then they find out, well, yeah, it, we use different systems, but they just like reorganizes the content and we still end up having the same problem. 
The third level is their intent. What was my true intent when I started this? And, and the question is, how do you know what your true intent is? Well, you, we, we say you look at your results, that your results are directly re related to your intent. Now, this is a bit, this is, in other words, your commitment, what you're really aiming at. That's what is going to come back to you. That's what you're going to see. So this, if half the team or 60 or 70% of the team thinks it's the content and structure methodology, they're going to go, they're going to look and they're going to do forensics and they're going to have conversations about that. If the other half thinks it's about the, the, what we're really aiming at, what are we really up to together? What's, how are we relating to each other about this and, and to have it turn out like, like, am I aiming at this to get it done? Because it makes the, what, this is what we said we do. And this is the difference we're trying to make. Or am I aiming at, I want to do this and make it work so that I look good because I want the, I need the, the press so I can get a job at a different place. Those are going to produce very different outcomes working with a team and producing something in a system. And so we, we are very, we're usually, because every decision is a leadership decision, every decision then has some fundamental relationship that needs to be in, or in place for that decision to be optimized. What is that if it's, if it's breaking down? Like, what is it that's really going on here? Like you said, when there's a breakdown in a system, it's usually because people aren't either talking about what they need to talk about or they're talking about something else that yeah, isn't important. That's right. Yeah. It's, some, it's something about the conversation, how it's occurring versus how it needs to be occurring. And there's something in the way they're relating to that. That's the metaphysics. They're relating to yeah. having that conversation. And if they're, if I'm aiming at something that isn't truly what we're, what we said we're about at some point, those agendas are going to collide. Even if the, what I'm aiming at is really close to what the team is aiming at or what we said we're about at some place, that's where the biggest rub is going to come in where, where they divert where the agendas go in different directions and that's well, I, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to this podcast coming out because when it does, I'm taking notes and I want to try to, <laughs> I want to try to deconstruct these conversations and figure out what the application is for, for my life for the next six months to two years. Well, you know, the reason I bring this up is because Adrian and I have talked about this quite a bit too. We've, we've been able to make a difference in a number of fields that we'd have no expertise in, but that, yeah. The, but those, but but the, but the 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 specific decisions that need to be made within that vertical or industry or whatever, relies on a human relationship, and we can get that tuned up. I mean, I remember I restructured a bank with a guy. They had worked um, two and a half years to restructure this bank. This was during the the just before the two thousand eight explosion, uh, and it's a subprime. This was this wasn't subprime. This was actually uh, these were. Uh, what do you call them? Jumbo loans. And, and this kid had gone into the system and, and produced huge results. And the bank kept taking the money they were making from his operation and funneling in to make and keeping the money to make bigger loan packages so they could make subprime loans. And it was pissing him off because he couldn't get the money out. Anyway, he had tried to get this thing out, get it done multiple times, get money off the table, renegotiate his organ, his, his contract and get out. And and either you know get some money off the table and increase improve his position at the bank, and and so and so he was like a like a subsidiary. So they they tried two and a half years, and he was using uh, his his brother in law as the lawyer, and the lawyer it didn't work, and so he hired me and my friend it was Hendrik, and we were going to go in, and, and he wanted us to renegotiate this contract. So I get in there and I'm working and I'm way, the way I find out that his ex-lawyer was his, his in-law was because he it's the lawyer I, I have inherited in the deal. So when I'm working through the project and I'm getting a sense of how to value the different pieces and how to work with them. And I realize this guy, this guy's kind of edgy and he's, he's not sending me all the information. He's doing a lot of things that tell me that there's something else going on for him. And when I start asking him about it, he's, 
he's rude. He's just, he's just a, a dick. So I go back to my client and I say, Hey, listen, um, and I'm talking to the lawyer and this is what's going on. He goes, I go, do you have any idea why he might be sour? And he says, well, I don't know if he's sour. I go, well, he's sour. And I told him about the conversation and he said, wow. Um, well, I should probably let you know, he was the lawyer I was using to try to restructure this thing before I hired you. And I said, well, that that's a problem. And he goes, what do you mean? He go, I go, do you think if I come across something and it's going to work, do you think he's going to, you know, how do you think he's going to feel? Do you think it's going to, he's going to be excited about me doing that? He goes, no, no, this guy's all in. He's my brother-in-law. I go, okay, cool. I, I said, look, I just want to let you know that if I, if I get to a place where he becomes a bottleneck, I want to be able to let him go if that's not going to work. He goes, oh, no problem. And it, that's what happened. I was in Italy and I was on another deal and we we're making, we we're trading term sheets. And I asked the lawyer, please just main terms right now. I don't want to put any details into this thing. I want to get an agreement at a high level. So we're clear that we have, this is worth dealing with the, the details. I said, please send me the term sheet before you send it. So I get up in the morning and I look at the term sheet. It's 10 pages long. I'm like, I, I, I get on the, I think he goes, what's wrong? I go, I got to, I hope he didn't send this. So I call up and I, I ask him, did you send that term sheet? And they said, yeah, we did. You know, you know, you, I said that. And I, so I said to my client, okay, so this is what I asked the lawyer to do. This is what he did. I told you he'd be a bottleneck, blah, blah, blah. He goes, oh, don't worry. This, I think this is the right thing. I said, look, let me ask you something. When I, did the re, when I did the forensics on this, one of the things you told me was you couldn't understand why every time you made an offer, it got locked up in legal and then expired, and we you could never get the deal down the road. This is it right here. Now, if, if, this, if they, they're not going to respond for three or four weeks now, if that happens... I want this lawyer out and I want this lawyer in because I had another one and my lawyer. And, and that's what happened. And we closed the deal seven weeks later. Right. But that that's an example of where the relationship, if I didn't discover that relationship, I would have been undermined the whole way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, that's right. And, and, you know, if you read accident investigations in, in my space, there's always something that comes out where there is some communication or something. There's always something that comes out that's that that is an organizational people failure that yeah. is rooted in all the other dominoes that fail to have the thing yeah. turn out bad. But, it, it, know, it's, it's really interesting. And and you know, getting, you know, getting even a, a small group of people to shift and have that conversation in different ways. One challenge, you know, I'm, and I'm, I, I am arrogant enough to believe I can be an influence in an industry. Yeah. Yeah. That that may not be the right way to frame that. There's probably a better way to language that. Well, I but, think you're confident. But that's the reality of it, right? <laughs> yeah. But when you, when you talk about doing what you want to do, implementing change with, and minimizing risk, it's going to, or minimizing threat, it's going to require an interpersonal skill that you're, you're going to have to be really, you're going to be, and you are quite a bit, actually, a ninja, and they don't need to know what's going on, but they need to be, oh, yeah, I want that. I want that conversation. Right. That's I, right. Yeah. That, yeah. That's another thing about this, too, that I, I think I, I learned from Dan in the training room is that it's not important that everybody understands what's going on. What's important is, what we're committed to cost, where we're committed to get to, and are we going there, right? And that, that's what's important. And ideally, you do that in a way that everybody's happy and feels good about it, but that's not required. Yeah. You know, what's, yeah. re, what's required is where we're committed to go. Right on. And, and how, I mean, it just hits me, like the comment even earlier, and I, I, I grew up in Southern Illinois, which is like, you know, salt of the earth type folks kind of don't say much, you know, cards close to the vest. I, a little bit of similar to the characterization you had earlier, like when pe people don't say much, but then when they say it, they really believe it. And, you know, that's a, that's a cultural practice for sure. And it, it becomes and ends up becoming a cultural assumption. And, you know, and that's where you start to loosen up 
loosen up that practice even because I, I can just, I'm connecting that even as an assumption that was so quick for you to like, just lay out there. Like, this is what it is. And I'm not going to talk until I'm certain that's dangerous. And, and when I do talk, I am only certain that's dangerous. It gives you, and you, and you pointed out a way of being where it's like, yeah, be really certain, be really smart. And then also have a type of thinking above that, where you question your own certainty. Um, yeah. in which you do, which is why I think probably makes you really attractive to folks you deal with. Cause you're really smart and obviously a subject expert. And you're always wondering, I mean, you're reading a book, you know, around. I'm, you, I'm really the guy wondering. who's always asking the question. Nobody else in the room will ask. I, I was That's in, right. so I'm, I work on a team that's an independent third-party team. It's It's got about 12 engineers on it. It's probably 12 of the top engineers in the world in their domains. And um, I was in a meeting where about half of those engineers in the meeting and nobody in the room was understanding what was going on. And I asked the question and afterwards, everybody's like, oh, we're so glad you asked that question because we wanted to ask the question, but <laughs> we didn't feel we got yeah. like, you know, I was the one person who wasn't afraid of looking stupid. But, you know, yeah. I guess I just want to learn how to say going on. <laughs> well, there's a big go on, I know where go on down I know to Texas where I, and hang out with me, man. We'll, we'll get we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll come have you swim in my waters. You'll figure all that out. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I know we're short on time, but it's just I mean, that's that's a great picture of of, you know, is one thing to be an expert. There's another thing to be a resource. Right where my expertise is here for you, but I'm going to start the conversation with you and what you need, where you're at. And there's a type of listening that experts don't like to do. I mean, we see it all the time in our world. Yeah. Um, when like a consultancy com company comes in with all their solutions and has very little interest in actually exploring the breakdown. And we find out who wants to explore the breakdown in such a way that the solutions were already in the room, just as much as the breakdown was in the room. Right. So, you know, that type of, and that becomes very magnetic, um, where they become more, more experts and they start to resource one another because of the types of conversations they're willing to have that they weren't willing to have before we walked in the room. It was all there. And it seems yeah, like that. Yeah, a lot of that's just about the, it, it's about the questions you ask. Yeah. And how you frame those questions up. So people are willing to engage the answers. That's right. And, and that, yeah, you know, right. it's not unlike what I do. It, it's, you know, the context might be a little bit different, but there's a lot more similarities than there are differences. You know, it, it what I've, what I find is, you know, it, a lot of times I'm framing a question up and I'll say, look, this may be a completely stupid question, completely out of left field, might not have any bearing at all, but I'm going to ask it anyways, because it's, it's up for me. Yep. Yeah. And it's great. It'd be, you'd be surprised how often, well, you, pro you guys probably wouldn't be surprised, but no. very often it's like, well, yeah, that's exactly what we were thinking. <laughs> I think I think people know like they just you just know in your body what questions in the room yeah 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 if you're paying attention yeah if you're not looking to prove something yeah yeah thanks Russell this has been great man it's so good to get to know you well thanks for having me on this has been fun like I said I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to this when it comes out with my notebook so I can write down some of these little gems and figure out how to get them applied <laughs> I always, I always love talking with, with, with people about this way of thinking, because in, in my world, there's not a lot of opportunity to do it. And it, it's really kind of good to sharpen the sword. Yeah. yeah. Well, come, come sharpen the sword again in the Revenant sometime with us. That would be awesome. I don't know. I think I was one and done for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you could come be on a team. <laughs> You know, I, you know I've, I've never, I've never trained. I've never trained. So that would be interesting. It would. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's an honor for me to be able to be a part of these conversations. And Thank you guys for having me. I've really enjoyed it. It's, uh, it, it's, it, it's been a lot of fun to have the conversation. It certainly got my wheels going a bit. I've, I've enjoyed it. Good. Thank you. All right. Thanks everybody. Thanks Russ. Bye-bye. Ciao.
Well, my friends, thank you so much for listening to yet another conversation on the Naked Leadership Podcast. Your listenership and commitment to the podcast means the world to us. If this podcast or these conversations has helped or inspired you in any way, would you mind going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star rating and a glowing review? This helps us grow the movement and reach more leaders and teams. Finally, the greatest compliment that you can give us is sharing the podcast with your teams and the other leaders in your life. Until next week, bye-bye everybody.